Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, an online, non-12-step addiction coaching program. An addiction not only to drugs, but to any number of non-drug involvements as well. To learn more about the Life Process Program or to access free addiction-related educational resources, visit our website at www.lifeprocessprogram.com or follow any of the links in the show notes. You may also text us at 802 802- 391-4360. That's 802-391-4360. And yes, when you text us, it will be a real person on the other end, ready to direct any questions or comments you may have about the Life Process Program, the podcast, or just addiction-related questions in general. In today's episode, I spoke with Daniel Snyder. Daniel lives in Langley, British Columbia, where he is a project and peer coordinator at Langley Overdose Response. He's also the founding creator of Mindful Hope, a hub of resources regarding harm reduction and sensible drug policy. Fifteen years ago, Daniel overcame a heroin addiction, and it was only after attending and being perplexed by and seemingly failing out of 12-step recovery programs that he found Smart Recovery, a non-12-step recovery program, and he's now living his best life and does not consider himself, quote, in recovery, which is a term that he broadly respects, but which he rejects as a descriptor of his own life experience. Some discussion points from today's episode. We talk about Daniel's story of overcoming addiction, of redefining and refining concepts like recovery and relapse, the positive aspects of the harm reduction approach, which is taken by many American county cities and states around the U.S. and in Canada as well, the downsides of some of these policies to the extent that one-size-fits-all policies often lead to unintended consequences. Uh, We discuss the quasi-religion of the disease model of addiction, understanding drug benefits, the reasonable place that drugs and even illicit drugs can have in a person's life, and we discuss suggestions for reasonable and sensible drug policy and an updated conceptualization of addiction. I hope you enjoy the show. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. Where to start? You have a background in terms of understanding what addiction is at a very personal level, and you've expanded that experience in a way that provides value to people who might be struggling with it now or people who just want to understand the landscape a little bit more. Tell listeners before we get too deep into that, um, just a little bit about your background and, and what you do now. Right. So I spent uh, 15 years, more or less, up and down in, uh, in an addiction to heroin. It was not a linear journey, as anyone who's uh, struggled with addiction would know. Um, and currently, I'm serving in a, in a capacity as a project and peer coordinator in British Columbia, Canada, in responding to the overdose crisis, sharing my lived experience, uh, and uh, training and educating the community and how we can uh, better understand addiction, better respond to the, the overdose crisis and, and mitigate it, reduce the number of deaths uh, that we're experiencing on, on just a, a daily basis. How do you apply your own experience to what you consider best ways of attacking the problem now and, and making sure that you're providing value in, in mitigating risks of overdose deaths? 
So I'm pretty grateful for British Columbia. The province I'm in is really progressive in terms of their uh, attitudes around substance use and the way that they're making efforts to respond to it. I know at least compared to other parts of the world and parts of the United States, we are really uh, progressive in the way we've adopted harm reduction um, efforts and the way we are moving forward with ideas like safe supply and decriminalization. And one of the things that they've done well here is in listening to the voices of those with lived experience. So allowing us who, who use drugs, who were addicted to share uh, our stories and how the policies that are being developed in our province moving forward should be shaped with that voice in mind. So I get to sit on uh, various tables and share that experience. I get to address issues where I see them. Um, just as an example, one that popped up uh, in an earlier meeting today was around the, the safe supply rollout where we are attempting to get doctors on board to help people that are struggling with uh, substance use disorders a safer supply of, of prescription drugs. So instead of purchasing from the, the toxic black market, they would be able to get their drug of choice from a doctor and know that it's safe and Taking my story into that context, um, I was someone who smoked heroin. That the uh, delivery method of smoking it was my preferred method. And just looking at uh, how that looked for me, I would say I was someone that was as equally addicted to the ritual of smoking it as I was to the drug itself. Um, that's not an uncommon observation of people that that are are years in addiction. They their ritual around it is such a big part of the driving force of the addiction. And, uh, you know, when we look at the safe supply that's being rolled out in British Columbia, there is no option on the table for smoking uh, a drug like heroin or um, opiates. So it's something where there's definitely a gap and where there's going to be people looked at and missed. And, uh, you know, one of my observations in terms of, um, Policy implementation from the top down is that when, when you're implementing policy, these one-size-fits-all solutions end up with a lot of unintended consequences. And I experienced a lot of that in my own journey as well. You hit on a few keynotes there that are super relevant to our program and also just our way of thinking at the Life Process Program and our model. One was just the concept of harm reduction. Another is talking about really being reliant on a ritual as opposed to just sole focus on a drug. And then the other that you're talking about is when you, when it comes to widespread policy, there are, there are ways in which we start talking about policies that we think, well, this will address this problem. And we don't think of it in terms of a system or, and we don't think of it in terms of human beings being on the, the other end of it. So, I mean, those are three things we could hover around. And before we do that, I just want to say that you gave me a gift of being willing to just chat with me for a little while. Uh, I probably left you on longer than we talked about, but uh, before we did the podcast. And it was interesting to me that I hear so often people who have lived experience who tell the standard recovery story. Mm. You know, it's like, uh, I was this way. I was so horrible. Then I found whatever it is in my life. I was about to say found Jesus, but just <laughs> uh, meant, you know, and, and tongue in cheek, I mean, it's almost that, that recovery religion. And sometimes you know, when I was beginning to write a book, I started writing it about my own experience. And I made the mistake early on of, of figuring that since this is my experience, this is what people need to know on a broad basis. 
you have done the calculus as I have now to understand that your experience is very useful because it means that whatever your experience is, is it can't be rolled out of a range of possible experiences people can have. So it's very useful to map that on to the kinds of things you're doing, uh, but it's not the end all be all. Could you talk about a little bit about how you came out of your own addiction, how you came to understand that uh, maybe a non-standard recovery story wasn't the story for you? Absolutely. So I completely recognize that each person is unique and their journey is unique. And I think that we really need to start there when it comes to helping people. Uh, We need to kind of get to know the individual that is struggling. And I didn't have that. uh, That wasn't presented as an opportunity to me. Generally speaking, in my recovery experience, I encountered professionals, uh, so-called professionals, counselors, addiction counselors, the treatment system in general, that they came at me telling me they know best. They know what works and what doesn't. And if I had a clue about how to live my life, uh, I wouldn't be there talking with them. So that that basically I should just sit down, shut up, and follow their direction. Uh, That was kind of my early year introduction to recovery. I mean, I remember um, one of the very first things I did here was, you know, once you're once an addict, always an addict. Um, And I felt like my introduction to recovery was a very hopeless one. It was one in which uh, my dreams, my desires, my who I am as a person was not taken into consideration. Um, That I just, as I already said, need to sit down, shut up and listen to the experts. And so I felt like a lot of my journey was perhaps extended as a result of me needing to kind of on my own discover who I am, uh, what's important to me, what am I attempting to achieve, what are my my goals in life, and and really actually stepping up and being assertive enough to communicate that to the people that were supposed to be there to help me. So I ran into a lot of walls. Uh, I mean, obviously... Most people are familiar with the way 12 steps is kind of put out there quite often as this is, this is the recovery solution, or this is the journey you will go on. You are now, uh, you're now telling us that you need, you want to move forward with your life. So what you need to do is 90 meetings in 90 days, and you need to go to go here because this is what's available. And in a lot of cases, uh, that was actually all that was available. There really wasn't a lot of alternative options. Uh, it was it was a twelve step program, or it was a conservative uh, Christian treatment program, and that was about all I I remember ever even hearing about until uh, until I was a little bit older. You are religious, right? I mean, I think that that sort of doesn't come into play so much in terms of which recovery path to choose. I mean, I, I know you said that you certainly don't want to rely on a program that says dogmatic aspects Mm -hmm. of your religion is what you need to adhere to in order to recover. So how does, what's the proper uh, association between uh, religion and, and recovery for you personally? I hate that word religion, but (laughs) it's got, it's so Mm -hmm. loaded, but I would call myself a a spiritual person of faith. I mean, I was raised in a Christian family. uh, And so, you know, I mean, I think the way people interpret religion is, is a set of rules and you got to live within the rules in order to find success. And I think that that's way too reductive and black and white to describe what I believe and how my faith operates. Um, Being someone who was raised in a Christian family, it was uh, natural that I would gravitate towards a spiritual version of recovery. And 
I actually found it for me highly ineffective. And it, it led me in later years to consider the fact that personality really does probably play a very large role in the recovery modality that is most effective for an individual. So when I, you know, actually started getting to know myself, becoming self-aware, engaging in, in some uh, kind of personality assessments, I, I really discovered that I'm a highly analytical kind of input-based person, you know, conscientious. The spiritual side of me is very, uh, it exists, but it doesn't dominate. And so being in a, in a type of treatment center that's telling me, you know, you can't be successful in life without Jesus. Uh, I'm looking around, I'm looking at the world, and I'm seeing plenty of people who are successful without Jesus. So my analytical mind is saying, you know, there's something that's not quite accurate about <clears throat> this need for me to be fully reliant on a higher power. And so my 12 step uh, skepticism was in high gear from a young age in, in the sense that uh, you're telling me I'm powerless and I need to rely on, on something that's beyond me. But I see plenty of people in life uh, that are, are self-empowering and taking taking it into their own hands and becoming successful. So yes, yeah, spiritual, spiritual recovery plays a role in my life. It's a part of it. It is not the driving force. Uh, I see personal responsibility as a much higher motivational force for me. I can certainly understand that. And I see why I'll let you talk about this, but you mentioned to me that you found smart recovery and that sort of, you didn't want to live by a series of prohibitions only but you wanted to maintain a spiritual aspect or at least be free to be as spiritual as you wanted or live life the way you wanted. And then also you thrive, as you say, on being able to interrogate your own thoughts and be analytical about things, think things through. Uh, so talk about, as I see it, those things all meld very well with smart recovery. And for people who don't know quite what that is, uh, maybe you could tell them a little bit about it and your experience with it. Yeah, so SMART is uh, self-management and recovery training, and it's essentially a, a cognitive behavioral therapy model in terms of uh, the way they approach addiction. They, they view it as a behavioral problem, essentially a learned behavior, something that can be corrected, um, not something that is a lifelong sentence or, or the ultimate definition of, of your identity. Uh, I really balked at the the need or at least the pressure to label yourself an addict in the 12-step modality uh, ever really from a young age. I, I kind of resisted that because I felt it was really loaded with hopelessness for me. It was like, okay, I'm taking on this identity and that means uh, I'm, I'm claiming this is who I am. And <clears throat> popular culture dictates that once you take that on, um, that's that's who you're going to be forever and i again you know falling back on my analytical mind was plenty aware of individuals who had uh really severe uh debilitating addictions and had changed permanently uh were clearly free we're not people that walked around like they were like they were vulnerable to relapse they were people that had 100 percent broken free from their addiction. So I didn't see how putting that, that lifelong label on myself was going to be beneficial. I also found it so strange that people would be in recovery for 10, 15, 20 years and still carrying that label around. 
I'm not speaking to other people's experience here, of course. Uh, I recognize that it can be empowering for some individuals. And this is where, again, the unique differences of, of a person come into play. Um, for me, if I walked with that label, I would have, uh, I think it would have crushed me. I think it, I would have given into it. Uh, I think I would have allowed it to become who I was. And by resisting it, it was like a, a stepping stone to breaking out of the addiction. So smart, uh, they discouraged the use of the labels. And when I walked into that room for the very first time, uh, the, and I've heard many people who have done this uh, coming to a smart meeting, the word they've used and the word I used was it was a refreshing alternative. Mm. It was really, really something different that didn't feel like there was this heavy weight of pressure to uh, perform uh, or that we, we weren't placing our number of days sober as the pinnacle of success, the measuring stick by which uh, healthy recovery is measured is not and should never be how many days of sobriety you have. It should rather be focused on the quality of uh, your life and the direction that you're headed in. Uh, I believe in incremental change. Uh, if you can make small changes today, they will uh, grow exponentially over time. So, and SMART gave me, uh, like their four-point program, as they call it, gave me a real ability to engage with uh, maintaining my motivation. And I, I think that the um, the reason or the, the spirit behind the, the NA model of kind of taking on the label is designed to keep you aware of your vulnerability to addiction, your, your propensity to potentially go back down that road that, you know, relapse is a very real possibility for someone. And so I understand what they're attempting to do there. Uh, but for me, it, it just would have, it was devastatingly hopeless. And I'm a person of hope. I'm one that wants to communicate hope for anyone that's struggling with an addiction. So that's something that I just could not, abide with you know i remember even just realizing that smart existed and i was fully immersed in aa at the time and i do remember that feeling of uh what, what was the word that you used that it wasn't enlightened relieved what was refresh refreshing Refre re refresh it, it really did it was like it was very validating to see that i wasn't insane to think that actually maybe I could live life on my terms, but that other people were thinking in this direction. You know, it was, it's difficult unless you know already to imagine that people are thinking that way, especially if you're being told uh, that there's only one way to do this thing and that you've consistently failed at it. I'd like to pull us back to something that you mentioned earlier. You were talking about the ritual of smoking for you and being mm. actually you know, somewhat of the, the routine that you needed to break and for various reasons. And we could go into what that looked like for you, but the, where my mind's going is that if it's the case that even if the drug itself plays a role in this thing, if the ritual is the thing that, that really is the tough part to re-navigate, then it would make sense to me that po it's very possible to use drugs or to drink alcohol in a responsible way as long as the ritual itself adheres to values and just overall being a basically good citizen. And so I imagine that that realization for you uh, and that understanding for you makes it easy for you to think about addiction and, and how to help solve it and how to help solve the most destructive parts of it in a harm reduction sort of framework. Am I right there or is that not how you made the jump? Well, yeah, when we think about addiction, we tend to associate it 
primarily with drug use uh, or alcohol use. And I'm one that doesn't really see any behavior as being benign in terms of its inability to become an addiction uh, or a problem. Uh, So I really feel like we need to step back from the whole picture and our our kind of social understanding of addiction and become aware that um, all these things can have problems attached to them. And so, you know, I recognized that there was, there was just really a lack of lack of meaning and a lack of purpose in my life and that the drugs were filling that void to some extent, obviously temporarily and not with uh, out consequences and that stepping back from that picture, I needed to find some meaning and purpose in other things. I needed to find something that had a little more meaning and purpose in it than, than the drugs themselves and the rituals attached to that. And, uh, you know, behaviors are patterns. They're familiar things. They're comforting things. So there was a lot of those elements attached to that. And, I mean, I've been to a fair number of treatment centers and detox detoxes, and <clears throat> getting away from the drugs is not really the difficult part. You know, a few days in, uh, you get through a detox, a little time has gone by and the drugs are out of the picture. Uh, that doesn't mean that that you're headed in the right direction or that recovery is necessarily even happening. And uh, I think I learned that probably the hard way over a, a period of time, call it trial and error, and just discovering that the journey was um, something that I needed to begin to understand who I was uh, within that journey, what I really wanted. I mean, I really fought with the need to, do I need to be abstinent? Can I moderately or responsibly enjoy, say, alcohol? That was a real desire of mine for a season. I want, I recognized some serious problems with heroin and other drugs, of course, but there was a part of me that really felt no, I can arrive at a place where I can be a social drinker. I can be responsible with it. Um, I, you know, society's attitudes towards alcohol are very different than a lot of other drugs. So I, I worked hard to try. And uh, it was through, through a number of years of ups and downs and just the, the reality began to fall on me that for me, that wasn't going to be possible. It was just not something that I was going to be successful in, no matter how hard I attempted it. Every time I, I, tried the responsible thing, it ended up spiraling out of control. And that was, Hmm. that was something I learned over time. And I think if we can have grace for people in their journey, can have the compassion to understand it and encourage them to realize, Hey, this is, this is about a learning experience. You may have had a relapse here. You may be experiencing a bit of a setback in your life. People are upset with you. You've let people down again, but that you're not a failure. And this is something you can learn from. Uh, I had an individual ask me one time after a relapse, why did you relapse? And such a simple and uh, wise question for which I had no answer at the time. I really couldn't answer him what what the reason was, what the why behind it was. And he said to me in response, you know, if you don't figure out the why, uh, you're probably going to keep repeating this. And relapse did define my life for many years. Um, Over that 15 years, I had seasons of sobriety. Uh, that was the goal. Six months, a year, a year and a half. Uh, but relapse was a defining factor. And for most of those years, it just meant failure. It just meant starting at day one. It just meant, you know, you go up to the front and humble yourself and get a, 
uh, just for today fob as they would do and uh, there was a massive amount of shame and guilt and uh, attached to that for me and until something within me shifted to looking at those experiences as learning experiences rather than failures exclusively uh, I was not able to become self-aware enough to even recognize the why or break free from those uh, patterns so that was a bit of a I went on a bit of a rabbit trail there, Zach. <laughs> but, and, I, and I led you down it. I wonder if you could offer a definition for what you mean by relapse. But let me actually ask it a different way. Um, I believe that the benefit of harm reduction is, is not only saying, look, I get that you use drugs. I get that you do whatever the, whatever the object of somebody's addiction is or bad life circumstances are. You say you want to live life a certain way and you get to, no one wants to take that away from you. And also, if you want to do that and stay safer, you can do that too. And uh, let me help you with that if you'd like. Um, so of course, that's one part of harm reduction. I, I go a little bit further and I don't, I, I don't see nirvana as quitting a drug. Mm. You know, that's, as you were saying, I see life enhancement as being whatever life enhancement means to that person. Uh, living one's values, living a mature life, being well-connected, purposeful, meaningful life. And I, to some extent, I don't see drugs as mattering. I always think about, you know, if drugs can be the least interesting thing in a person's life, that, that usually seems to be a great place to be. And then there are some people who would say that no qualms with people who use drugs, but you know, if, if they're really going the distance, some, some people will say that, you know, the greatest goal they could achieve is not using drugs at all, where do you fit on that spectrum? So my individual uh, goal uh, has been for a long time and, and remains abstinence because I discovered that that would be the most effective way for me to have a, a pur purposeful and successful life as I defined it. I am 100% on board with you in the way that you talk about drugs being like kind of the least interesting part of a person's life. Like that would be a, a great way to, to look at it. I think that we have, we really do overemphasize uh, the role drugs play in addiction in particularly in most recovery modalities. The, uh, the emphasis is far too much on um, stopping the drugs. Drugs are bad. Uh, you need to get the drugs out of the picture. And I just, I think for most people, like, as I've already said, that's kind of the easy part. And it doesn't produce uh, a successful, meaningful life just by pulling the drugs out of the picture. And if we can understand that drugs are being used by an individual for a purpose and that there's a reason in, uh, underneath them, they're obviously, they're obviously doing something. They're obviously effective to some extent. Uh, they're actually uh, so effective to that individual that the, the consequences are outweighed uh, by the, the need to continue using. So uh, I, I do think that we need to stop um, focusing quite so much on drugs and, and considering more the individual. And that's, that was a big part of the, the journey for me was um, shifting my perspective from you have to stop using drugs to you have to discover who you are and what you want in your life. So that, how, how that came about how that journey happened over time. You know, I have a story from 10, uh, about a decade ago, I had left a treatment center and I was like, I'm going to reinvent my life. You know, I, I'm ashamed essentially 
of my past. I'm ashamed of the drug use and I'm going to, I'm going to reinvent my life. I'm going to start a new circle of friends. None of my new friends are going to know anything about my past. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to discuss it with them. I'm going to, I'm going to leave it behind. And uh, that, that went well on the surface for a little while. Problem is when a person is not honest about who they really are and your past is a part of who you really are, um, then they're, they're, being, they're being artificial, they're being fake. And that was me. Even though I was sober at the time and I had attempted to reinvent myself, I was not being honest about where, how I had arrived at that place. And, you know, I, I did experience, you were going to ask me about what relapse looks like. And I experienced another relapse at that point in time shortly after. And all these new friends, uh, new social groups kind of saw on display <laughs> the real me, the part of me that I was trying to hide, the, the uh, addictive behaviors came out and I was strung out and I was clearly not looking well or doing well around them. And uh, all these efforts into hiding that part of myself were destroyed. And it was this light bulb moment where I realized, you know, you can't hide from your past. You need to own it. You need to own it in such a way that it maybe becomes a part of defining you moving forward. And that actually was a the part of the place where I found meaning and purpose. So we take the drugs out of the picture and now I can own that part of my life. I can say, Hey, uh, uh, I'm strong enough to be vulnerable. Uh, vulnerability is strength to share this with the world, to share this with people in my life, to, to say, this was who I was. And, uh, and that was actually the source of um, total transformation for me. It was the source of uh, permanent change was, was in owning that past. So the focus was clearly not on the drugs. Uh, the focus was on, on me, on who I am, on what was underneath it. You say you relapsed. Do, do you feel, when you're looking back on that and calling it a relapse, um, whereas I imagine you could have thought about it during that time as having done drugs again, do you look back and think about a relapse as just destructive behavior generally, rather than just, I did drugs again? Yes. <laughs> so... I would say um, if I look at my relapse experiences, they ended with drug use and started months before that in almost every case. And uh, I found um, a way of identifying that was just looking at how my life was shifting and trending in that direction. And it was something that's probably much easier done in retrospect than it is uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, but as a person gets to know themselves, I think they can become a little more conscious and aware of uh, where they're allowing things to slip in life, forgetting priorities, uh, perhaps anxiety increasing, um, and different things that are markers that lead towards uh, relapse in their life. And I had a, I actually had a counselor who gave me a very wise assignment at one time. He said, why don't you write out your next relapse, which is a little bit of a morbid thing to say because uh, it's like you're planning for it. But his intention was that. write out what it would look like, like, and not only what the substance use would look like, what would look like leading up to that? What kind of circumstances and things would be going on in your life that would lead you to the point that on, that, on a given day, at some time in the future, you decide to use drugs again? I've already said it, it ends in drug use, but I think even studies show that most relapses are two or three months in the making. Through that assignment, I was able to identify key stressors and things in my life that were things that tended towards me looking and needing an escape. 
And most of my drug use was always about escape and numbing pain and, and just disconnecting from reality, feeling uh, unable to bear the responsibility of life, feeling unable to, to face uh, things that were, were before me. And so I was able to really identify key things that were, were markers for me heading towards relapse. And when you become aware enough to identify those things, you also have the power at that point to put a stop to it, to bring it back before the, the substance use even happens. Yeah, I love that point. Now, looking into your work and the larger picture, you're in British Columbia, and you mentioned that plenty to enjoy about that, the, the ways in which they talk about drugs, drug laws, treat drug users, when compared to a lot of the places here in the U.S. and probably uh, across your country as well, there's a lot to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that, but also not let escape from us what you mentioned about, you know, sometimes there are very well-meaning laws that have people's interests generally in mind, but fail to keep up the process of keeping in touch with citizens to make sure that the policies that are being enacted are actually you know, what people need. So I'd love to hear if I could just say that a little better way. I'd love to hear the good and the bad and, and what keeps you so busy. I mean, it has to be something that you think should change or else you wouldn't be so, uh, so involved. Well, the, the overdose death rate is, I mean, it's really the bad here, obviously. It's astonishing how many lives are being lost. Um, the province of British Columbia is about 5 million people and we're, in 2020, we're losing uh, almost six people a day to fatal overdose. And so for me, that is a major driver in terms of my passion for the work. Uh, I want to see these overdose numbers come down. Um, I, I'm super grateful for the opportunity to be, well, to be talking to you, to be alive today, really, because honestly, in the, in the light of the toxic drug supply that we are experiencing with the way fentanyl has contaminated that supply. Uh, had it been that way in my years of drug use, uh, I don't, I don't think I'd be alive. I really don't. It's just such a, uh, the drug supply is just so toxic. I was someone who was using, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of heroin a day. And basically now the, the heroin has been displaced by fentanyl on the street. Uh, it's been that way for four or five years in in bc in 2012 we detected fentanyl in about four percent of fatal overdoses and in 2018 it was detected in 87 percent so it just shows how much um this toxic uh and very profitable synthetic opioid is has saturated the black market and so as far as the good um it's, it's motivated a lot of people. It's beginning to motivate politicians uh, towards change. I mean, we just had our provincial health officer release a report calling for the decriminalization of substance users. And I mean, I think that that's the traje trajectory that we need to head in the West in general is that, you know, we need to stop criminalizing people who use drugs. We need to stop discon criminalization disconnects people from society. It disconnects people from their loved ones. Uh, and, I mean, I was disconnected enough in my substance use. I am grateful that I didn't run into law enforcement or have to deal with that side of things in any way, uh, because I don't know that I would have made it out of that. 
I mean, it seems to perpetuate addictive cycles and compound the traumas and difficulties that people with substance use disorders face if we add a criminal element into it. So for me, it's kind of common sense. It's logical that we move towards towards that. I think it's a stepping stone. Uh, we've really rolled out a very uh, powerful and effective naloxone response in British Columbia. The naloxone has been reportedly used in reversing over 15,000 overdoses in this province over the last eight years. And so that's an amazing thing that I get to be a part of is training individuals, uh, making sure that we can get naloxone kits into their hands, that they know how to use them. And then hearing the stories of, of lives saved and lives changed. Um, I did experience an overdose in my years using and was saved by local paramedics. Um, and so I have a belief and a hope that, you know, there's potential in everybody. And that uh, our efforts and our focus as a society really needs to be on helping reduce the harms that drugs cause. We're not, I'm not talking about condoning drug use or, you know, there's the black and black and white way that people often look at drug use with the tough love versus enabling uh, concept in, in terms of people that were responding to me in my years always felt like they were wrestling with whether they were enabling me or they needed, were going far enough with their tough love. And it seemed like there was no middle ground. There was no gray area. And when you're dealing with a loved one who's struggling, it's a, it's a messy, emotionally loaded, difficult thing. And uh, I understand the agony that family experiences um, in, in trying to navigate that. And I really think one of my roles and one of my passions is trying to bridge the gap which too often seems politicized. It seems too, too often that the left wing, uh, so to speak, is engaged in their harm reduction advocacy and their passion for needle distribution and naloxone and safe supply and let's move forward with decriminalization. And then the right wing, which seems like they are, for whatever reason, in conflict with that and want to just say, no, no, those, those things enable drug use and we need to just get people into treatment and get people off drugs. Drugs are bad. And I mean, both of these perspectives alone are incomplete uh, and somewhat reductive. And I feel like my role is trying to bridge that gap and trying to say, hey, I would not be here if it wasn't for the people who met me with harm reduction along the way and helped keep me alive. Nor would I be here if it wasn't for the people who saw potential in me and recognized that uh, they could play some role in helping pull me out of the substance use that was destroying my life, very obviously, and killing, nearly killing me, and uh, help me to find a way to get free from that. And, and we really do need to bridge the gap. It's not harm reduction or treatment. It's, it's not either or. It's not tough love or enabling. It's, there's a gray area, a very messy gray area in between where people are falling through that crack and they are actually perhaps being harmed by um, these blanket policies, which forget that there's individuals uh, in the middle. You, know, you have a, a dialectic there that you're trying to involve yourself in depending on where you start, maybe a thesis of harm reduction, uh, an antithesis of that's enabling and some sort of a synthesis needing to be brought out that says, yeah, we can encourage best human behavior and strong worthwhile citizens. And also we can't get there if they all die, you know? And, exactly. And, and oh so, yeah. Yeah. 
you can't help someone that's not alive. And I mean, I see almost all harm reduction um, efforts, safe consumption sites, all of it are opportunities for connection. They're connection points that can let a person know that there's someone that cares about them, let a person know that they, they have value as a human being uh, right where they're at uh, in that day. And perhaps a uh, connection to something, something further. Perhaps that person arrives at a point in time where they make a choice to engage with some sort of recovery program uh, or take a step in towards something different. So yeah, we, we, need, we need those services to be available. And we need the people that, that are a part of those services to recognize that the role they play is a connection point. You talked about decriminalization, and I can't imagine what a boon that would be if we could roll that out in some meaningful way. I've just talked to way too many people who are in isolation because they don't feel like they're a part of society. You know, they, they are other and it's by virtue of the drugs they choose to use, the ways they choose to alter their consciousness. It's not as good as the ways that other people choose to alter their consciousness. So they are in isolation and can't talk about it. There's, there's no brainstorming or meeting of the minds that allows this conversation to happen in, in good politics. So I, I do see that, you know, we make a fork in the road when that happens. So I guess just real quick, what do you, how do you see uh, decriminalization being a boon? I was someone who in my years in addiction, <clears throat> I always maintained employment. I always had a house. I always had a vehicle. And so I felt a very strong need to hide my behavior. And um, one of the things that we're experiencing just through the data, we can understand that more than 75% of fatal overdoses in our province are happening to people inside their homes. They're in private residences. So the perception might be um, because of the, we the way the media creates this perception for us is that we are dealing with the homelessness crisis in terms of the people that are uh, addicted and dying or on the street. You know, they show us these images of needles on the ground and back alleys. And, and that's kind of the, gen the perception that the general public might form around the overdose crisis is that, this is um, the visible homeless population that's at risk here. And, and then there's a little more of a level of apathy towards the issue, perhaps. When you put a face to it and you look at someone like myself who didn't, didn't have a look, if you walked past me on the street during my years in addiction, I just, you wouldn't have had that stereotypical, judgmental, there goes a drug addict uh, kind of thought in the back of your mind. Um, I didn't look any different. So decriminalization can hopefully bring people out of hiding. It can hopefully destigmatize uh, our perceptions around certain substances. And we've done that uh, very well with alcohol. I mean, there's not a lot of stigma around alcohol in our societies. People feel free to talk about it. Uh, we're doing that pretty well in Canada with the legalization of cannabis. People are, are much more open to talk about it to such an extent that at fatal overdoses, um, people will claim that they were just smoking weed because they feel pretty comfortable admitting that. Uh, whereas they try to hide the fact that they were using other substances, which have a higher level of stigma attached to them. So, you know, being someone who in my life was addicted to heroin, that's one of those drugs that you don't really walk around telling people about that you're using or that you're struggling with. And I see decriminalization as a way of opening the door towards allowing those individuals to feel that they can access resources that they will be treated with respect, that we can recognize um, that they're just someone who that particular substance is uh, the one that seems to be the most effective for them. I mean, why do some people not like alcohol and prefer weed? 
and we used to have this such a critical attitude towards an individual like that. And uh, why? It's just a uh, it's just a preference. Now, of course, uh, I'm not trying to minimize the harms associated with certain certain drugs. There's obviously greater harms with, uh, say, cocaine and crystal meth use or crack use on a daily basis compared to smoking cannabis. But we do need to change the way our society has at the attitudes of our society towards people and what drug they choose to use. So I think that that would be a stepping stone. I don't see decriminalization personally as, the, as an end goal. I think it's a, a means to an end. I think it's a right. step towards legalization, which might be a topic for another day. Sure. Yeah. So things won't be fixed by doing it, but one way or another, we have to ha be able to have the conversation. And like Alan Mertlett used to say, I think this is his quote, uh, something, I'm, I'm going to screw it up, but it's something like the disease model, this recovery idea is the moral model in sheep's clothing in that, you know, it's, you could still make sure that drugs are illegal. We can still make sure that anyone who does drugs or has a problem with them feels like they're horrible. But if you come crawling on your knees, we'll, we'll be your caretaker kind of a thing. Uh, I think was his, the way that he thought of it. And so just the idea of shifting that perspective from, oh, you, you do this thing, you must really need help to, hey, how's your life going? You know, decriminalizing and be able to, being able to let people in on the conversation in a sort of natural way rather than uh, a scripted way. But yes, as you say, that, that could be a, con I'll let you respond to that, but that could be a, con a whole different podcast conversation. I, yeah, no, I like that, that quote that you just gave. I, I want to get the, that in full um, because we say the, the moral theory is a hundred years old and we claim that we've moved past it. But if anyone spends any time on social media, it's pretty clear that we have not really moved past right. it as a society. And, uh, I'm not a fan of the disease theory either, um, but I think it's a necessary part of evolving our social, our attitudes towards substance use of helping us shift it into being, uh, to considering addiction as a health issue, to allowing individuals to engage with the health system and get the support and, and help that they need. Uh, I think that we are gonna progress beyond the disease theory. I, I mean, it's happening, obviously. Um, there's people that are recognizing that this is uh, perhaps got its own problems attached to just stopping there. And so I'm, I'm excited and encouraged about the way that our social attitudes are evolving. But um, yeah, we're we're getting we're only just getting there. We're only scratching the surface in terms of helping our societies at large change their attitudes towards drug use. Well, the bad news is we've already been talking for more than forty five minutes, and I guess the good news is that you're interesting because that's one of these times that it, the time just goes by, and I'm looking at the clock like what what just happened. But, um, <laughs> So we should, we should actually maybe maybe we should table that and if you're interested we could we could do a whole nother talk on the the disease model legalization decriminalization because now I'm remembering that uh, we actually had a very interesting conversation about that and and what progression looks like throughout history but I'll leave it there for now and just say that, that just thanks for everything you're doing thanks for being in touch and it's really cool talking to you hearing your story and learning how you're able to project that onto the world in a very um, a very modest way, but also a very humble way, I should say, but in a very meaningful way. And um, I, I guess if there's anything that you think I, I left untouched that, that we should talk about in terms of your thoughts about 
um, addiction and policy, then now's a good time. Uh, well, I appreciate you having me on, Zach, and I, I would love to continue the conversation um, for sure. I mean, it's something I'm passionate about. Drugs just aren't aren't bad. They uh, they can harm people, but we gotta we gotta reduce reduce the harms, and that's that's the efforts that I want to make as a as a person. And I, I always want to leave every conversation uh, with a message of hope and just saying, you know, there's hope for everybody, no matter where a person or is at. Um, if you're a family member with a loved one struggling, there's hope for that person. They're in a process. It's a journey. So don't give up. If, if they don't have hope for themselves in the moment, well, you can, you can supply that hope for them. And uh, thanks again for having me. Well, thank you. And that's Daniel Snyder. If people want to get in touch with you, find more about your work, learn more about you, what you think. I know that you have a place that's kind of a hub for information about this topic and work that you do personally. Where can people find you? And I'll make sure to plug those into the show notes. So most of my uh, engagement now is both is either Facebook or Twitter. So my Facebook is at DGA Snyder, uh, Snyder with a Y. And my Twitter is at Daniel Snyder one. And uh, no, I appreciate anyone reaching out to me. I love to converse and chat and discuss, uh, discuss these issues and, and point people towards resources too. So uh, in my area, um, absolutely love to, to help people connect if they need some connection. Thanks again for coming on and we'll definitely stay in touch and hopefully we'll do this soon. Absolutely, Zach. Sounds good. Thanks.